Hi, I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen, and remember, keep talking Who! Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video junkyard podcast you are listening to the doctor who target book club podcast happy listening hello darlings i'm katie manning and i played joe grant and joe grant jones in doctor who <laughs> and iris wild time hello lovies <laughs> and you're listening to doctor who target book club podcast enjoy your travels darlings bye-bye time travelers and welcome back to the doctor who target book club the podcast in which we undertake the dexterous task of discussing in story order all the doctor who novelizations because dexterity hands it <laughs> yeah my name is tony Whit, and today we have an equally dexterous four-person discussion panel including our so-called expert who's been a who fan since 1979 that would be me there's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, was not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. There's also our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Happy Vernal Equinox. Equinox. Oh, yes. A good Equinox to you. Okay, and finally, we welcome back our special guest, the current secretary of the Celestial Intervention Agency, the longest-running Doctor Who fan club in North America, and contributor to Red, White, and Who, Jennifer Picker. Hello, Jennifer. Hello, everyone. We were just saying before we started recording that we haven't had you on since way back when we recorded The Demons. It's a pleasure to be back with you. And it's a pleasure not to be calling the master a dick for once, even though he really <laughs> deserves it every time we do. If you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving the PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you store them deep below the ground of the coldest planet in the galaxy, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, and I need to take a deeper breath now because this is a longer list than we usually have. 
Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Guy Lambert, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Thank you, thank you. Ooh, that was hard to get through. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with the second story of Tom Baker's third season and Liz Sladen's last story as Sarah Jane Smith in the 1970s with Terrence Dick's novelization of The Hand of Fear. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Hand of Fear, adapted by Taryn Sticks from the script by Bob Baker and Dave Martin, that aired from 10276 to 102376, published by Target Books in January 1979. As of this recording in March of 2021, this title is currently out of print, 127 pages. Inspired by the 1946 movie The Beast with Five Fingers, which I have to admit I've never actually seen, this story by Bob Baker and Dave Martin was originally meant to be the final story of the previous season. It was also originally a six-parter believe it or not, but the script editor, Robert Holmes, felt the script had significant problems and decided to carry it over to the next season. It originally did not contain Sarah's departure, but it would have featured Harry and the Brigadier, including the Brigadier's death. Mm. And apparently they decided not to do that, which is a good thing. When Liz Sladen soon announced that she wanted to leave, Robert Holmes originally commissioned former director Douglas Canfield to write a story called The Last Legion, which would have been a historical about the Foreign Legion, that would have ended with Sarah dying. Apparently, much to Liz Sladen's relief, he was unable to do so. He just didn't want to go through with it because she didn't want the story to be about her leaving. She wanted it to be incidental to the actual story. Rather a bloodthirsty backstory you have here. Yeah, yeah Must I know. kill off someone. Who will it be? Yes, exactly. Holmes asked Baker and Martin to revise the script into a more linear story, though this resulted in less actually happening in the last two episodes, which Philip Hinchcliffe himself didn't like. He felt Sarah didn't get enough to do. Robert Holmes wrote the departure scene himself, and he allowed Tom Baker and Liz Sladen to significantly rewrite it themselves. According to the TARDIS wiki, in terms of seasons, Elizabeth Sladen is the longest-serving companion, but not in terms of episode count or in terms of years. Those records go instead to Jamie McCrimmon and to upcoming companion Tegan, respectively. She will return in two more stories in the classic series, both of which have novelizations, so we will meet her again. And, spoiler alert, she will get to see Gallifrey eventually, as it turns out. As we've noted before, after playing Sarah many times in audio and at least one fan-produced video, Liz Sladen herself would return in the second season of the new series in School Reunion. Based on the success of that episode, Russell T. Davis launched The Sarah Jane Adventures, a series geared directly to children that she starred in from 2007 until her death from cancer in 2011. And Hand of Fear was in fact the story that BBC Four showed over two nights as a tribute to her a month later. So... We should have a dramatic reading of the back cover. So, Jennifer, since you are our guest, would you be willing to do that for us? Certainly. The TARDIS lands in England, and Sarah, the doctor's companion, looks forward to going home. A freak accident in a quarry leaves the unconscious Sarah clutching an enormous stone hand. The hand is the only surviving remnant of Eldred, an alien superbeing expelled from his planet Castria, and it has the power to control the human mind. Using Sarah as its instrument, the hand goes in search of the atomic energy it needs to regenerate Eldred's body. Eldred is determined to return to Castria and punish his enemies. The Doctor and Sarah are caught up in the terrifying conclusion of a drama of betrayal and revenge that began millions of years ago. Okay. Jennifer, when you first saw this novelization, whenever the first time you read it was, what were your first impressions of it? I was probably a very little girl when I read it. I think I enjoyed the kind of zombie-like horror that was involved. It was a little scary. And um, I watched the episode first, though, and I loved Eldred Must Live. (laughs) 
So, um, yeah, it, I guess I, it was the scary factor that I really enjoyed as a very young reader. Okay. And Allison, I know that you did not read it as a very young girl. So <laughs> what was your first impression of this one? Well, my first impression is that I'm still younger than you. <laughs> this is true. And my second one, <laughs> due to various overcommitments, I did the audiobook again. I think this is the third or fourth book that I've done on audio instead of reading. And it's always quite a different experience. But I had the same cover art. So I had that same first visual impression, mm -hmm. um, which was that Galactus had cornered the Doctor and Sarah in a quarry. Um, <laughs> but he had a slightly different uh, headgear. So do you mean before we actually opened it? Or, yeah, yeah. Or the, or uh, uh, from the, the impression of the cover, the impression of what the title of the story was promising you, etc. You had promised me, or you had warned me this would be Sarah's last. I would not have anticipated that from the story until it actually happened. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's true, because it's kind of a... Uh, minor little story in its own way. Dalton, what were your first impressions? Just thinking of The Hand of Fear, I, I immediately thought up images of Thing from the Addams Family. Yeah, a hand <laughs> kind of just doing its own thing. thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it also made me think of, uh, there was like early 2000s, late 90s horror movie. I think, Idle like, Hands. Idle Hands. So yeah. I, my brain went there. And so... Judging from the cover, I expected the hand to be larger than it is actually in the story. I was expecting, you know, some kind of giant hand, something from a huge statue or something, not expecting it to just be kind of human-sized. From that, I was expecting a little more destruction, a little more danger from the hand, other than just Sarah getting hypnotized, for I feel like the fourth story in a row yeah um, <laughs> it was better than i was hoping for but i still ended up being kind of let down by okay. it okay may i throw in a side comment from pulling that out for the first time before reading for this podcast was i looked at her, her the cover and i was like she's they don't have the right outfit on her no no they don't do they in <laughs> fact i'm trying to i'm trying to remember which story that outfit is from because that is from another story but you're right it's not the andy pandy outfit that she has for this particular one in fact taryn sticks doesn't make reference to the andy no, pandy I, outfit i noticed that yeah I, I watched it off and on throughout the week as well as read it and i was like they didn't call it the mamby pamby outfit no no, and the main reason for that is, of course, because Dix would have been working from the shooting script, probably, and wouldn't have had any idea. As a matter of fact, let me see if I can find it online real quick, because I should show the rest of y'all what this thing looks like. I'm curious as to what such an outfit would look like from, from the description. Oh, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. In fact, let me pull this up very quickly for you. And I will show you. I mean, it kind of sounds like it's being suggested that Sarah Jane's outfit is not manful enough, which would be an interesting criticism in this context. Well, it's not so much that it's not manful enough. It's not what you expect a companion to be wearing on their last outing. In fact, oh, this is terrible. Well, I believe also I, there's a resident Brit here. Wasn't Mamby Pamby? I'm calling into my the resident Brit. Andy Pandy. Andy Pandy was a character from another show. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's a children's show aimed at children about the age of five. Okay. And below. And below. Yes, and that makes perfect sense. Ten minutes long and just before the six o'clock news. Did you guys hear that? Yep. Let me show this to you because... For this it... crowd, that's a deep cut. Yeah, it is. In fact, it kind of has to be seen to be believed. So I'm just going to show this to you very quickly. Listeners, you're, you already know what it looks like if you've seen the show. But yeah, she's wearing something that would not be out of place in a Mork and Mindy episode. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> yes, it is exactly that style. It is the bib overalls. It is the three stars, the red, the stripes, the, oh my God, and the socks, the striped socks and everything so it's a very kiddish kind of outfit and that's something that gets its own line in the episode reception dr card here now listen the dark-haired young woman wearing some pink striped overalls yes pink striped overalls 
Yes, just like Andy Pandy. Which is why it's surprising that it's not actually in the uh, novelization. But it is indeed Sarah's last story, so let's just go with the elephant in the room. Nothing against Sarah. Allison, you said that if you had not been told this was Sarah's last story, you would never have guessed. Why Why was that the case? That has been true for about two-thirds of the Companion's final stories that I've read. If I was not told ahead of time, it was not obvious until that second-to-last page. Because, once again, I'm used to the modern convention that when a, a character is leaving a show, the last story that they're in, they are the star of that story. This is This is earlier than when that's the case. So we saw Joe leave most recently. I felt like that whole story built towards Joe leaving in a way that seemed obvious at the end. I realized, oh yes, of course that's what they're setting up, in a way that was somewhat satisfying. Here, it seemed like a kind of a letdown of the story for her to go out on. Yeah, and to some degree that's Liz Sladen's choice, that she specifically did not want it to be event TV, like the death of the companion would have been, and that would have been majorly upsetting to those of us watching at the time. I would have been satisfied with greater heroism of a companion, though, if we are able to pick one. That's true. That's true. Jennifer, you said that you watched this as a kid. When you watched it as a kid, did you know that Sarah was leaving in the story? I I don't think so. I believe I was a little shocked when she left, if I recall properly. Mm -hmm. Another observation that I made as a reading it and watching it this time was I never really realized how similar her departure was to Tegan's. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> well, we can't really talk about that just yet, but you're right. Okay. It does have the same kind of abruptness, doesn't it? Yes. Except that when Tegan leaves, it's not on such good terms as Sarah leaves with the doctor. Yes. When we read Joe's last story, it was, how shall we say, aggressively anticlimactic in the adaptation. Yeah. And then you showed us those last scenes and they were very touching and I, I had something in my eye. So, <laughs> yeah. so do we have that kind of a contrast here between the adaptation and the episode? It's definitely much more of a, a send-off on the page than it was for Joe. A little bit of a surprise of, I'm quitting. No, no, you're not. I'm quitting. I'm leaving. And I, and I didn't expect that particular dynamic. So is it very similar on screen or quite different? It's actually fairly close to the on-screen version, except it's a little more drawn out simply because Liz Sladen and Tom Baker added some lines to it, which, come to think of it, I think Terrence Sticks left all of them in. Dalton, did you get any sense that this was her last story when you started it? No, other other than the hints that you've kind of been hinting at the past few stories, I didn't feel it coming at all. You had mentioned that Sarah was kind of getting fed up with the doctor's actions, but even at the end of this one, she seems to be telling him, I want to go as a way of kind of making him miss her or make him be apologetic or ask her to stay. It's kind of a way of forcing his hand. But since he's been called back to Gallifrey, he really has to let her go. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, no, I I did not see it coming. And it was, yeah, like Allison said, it was kind of disappointing for this story to be her last because you don't get to see those moments of heroism that, that she has in some of the stories we've read recently. She just is kind of absent. For a lot of this, even though she's she's there, but she doesn't have very much to do at all. Yeah. And I think you're right about that because she's possessed for most of the first. Well, she's unconscious for part of the first episode, possessed for the latter half of it. By the time we get to the second episode, she's out of it. But then she's hypnotized by the doctor again. And then when we get into episode four, it's just another kind of death to the Daleks thing where they're going down into some deep cavern under a city. And we think that there's somebody watching them and it turns out there isn't. So we get that fake out again. Yeah, by by the end of this, she's basically being handheld by the doctor just to take Eldred back. Even the, the reveal about Eldred being a male version I don't know. A lot of things in this book were kind of just fizzled for me. Hmm. All right. That's probably the case with our other panelists. Allison, Jennifer, how did you feel about the way the story pans out despite having Sarah's departure at the end of it? Well, actually, let me rephrase that. Are we happy that we're back with Terrence Dix now? Because we've had two very bad books. I keep 
trying to show him the door. <laughs> yeah, well, here's the thing. The last two books that neither of you were on, but Dalton and I were, were written by Philip Hinchcliffe, and they were not good. They were bad, and they were ugly. Wow, <laughs> I picked good ones to miss. This one, however, is Dix again, and we have a prologue which actually corresponds to a scene on screen. Did we enjoy at least the the setup of the book? Kind of the juxtaposition of Dix to Hinchcliffe makes me enjoy Terrence Dix's writing. I don't know if it's his best work, but I definitely felt like there was some care there. There were some details there that I just wasn't getting with the past couple of stories. Maybe once we read a few more dicks, I'll be able to feel whether or not this was a, a quality book. But it definitely is a marked change from Hinchcliffe's writing. Okay. Yeah, I'm scrolling up to the uh, copyright page here to see if we're attending a service at the uh, Church of the Latter-day Dicks. <laughs> and 79, he should still care, at least a little. Yeah, except he's done a lot of script-to-page novelizations by that point, so this should actually be veering into that territory. And kinda it does. As a matter of fact, I don't want to get Jennifer in on this one. How closely do you feel this book cleaves to the uh, televised version, Jennifer? I think it's fairly close. There's more imagery of in the book of them going through the catacombs trying to get Eldred to the regeneration room. I, I like it. I like the picture it paints. And we do have that to thank Dix for because the imagery at least, it's it quite vivid. Far more vivid than the story itself is, so that's useful. It is already at the script-to-page stage of Dick's writing. However, it's not quite as bad as some of them. He's willing, for instance, for us to hear a name for that Castrian at the very beginning, which I can't even pronounce, Zazka. It sounds like a drag queen name or something like that. I'm Zazka, honey! Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but he gives us that, and he gives us a little bit more characterization of Carter. He gives us a little more characterization of uh, Watson. So there is that. Once again, I had a much different experience listening to the audiobook that I do reading them, because, of course, we've read much more of Terrence Dick's adaptations than we have anyone else's work uh, here for our sins. And, and some of them have been quite enjoyable as well. We give him a hard time, but he has uh, given us some hours of delight as well. I think the first audio book that I heard was actually narrated by Tom Baker. Mm -hmm. uh, there was one by a professional narrator and then one that was a bootleg for the blind that I enjoyed a lot. <laughs> yes, um, it was just one blind. take. It was terrific. I'm not being ironic about it. This is the first one that had a woman narrator. So it's oh. a Pamela Salem on here. Oh. And I think my impression of the story was very informed by what she had a good time with. So she did a fantastic prologue, and she likes the aliens. So she did this wonderful, creepy intonation for the, the pod at the beginning when they're in the obliteration module. And then she had a terrific time with the conversation between Zazka and Eldred at the end. And then in between was very professional, but not nearly as interested, and I think had a lot less to work with. So I came away with the impression that we had yet another terrific uh, Terrence Dix prologue that's very gripping. I was actually surprised it's in the story because so often um, you've told us that they are they're added uh, at the time of adaptation. And then at the end, it was very interesting. And then I have almost no notes from the beginning other than nuclear chase, aliens lib, tunnels, Eldred trans, Eldred evil. <laughs> but then uh, she she brought a lot of humor and sarcasm to the delivery of their conversation at the end. So I enjoyed the beginning. I enjoyed the end. Towards the middle, it was a lot of material that we've seen before. I, you know, I'm glad Sarah got to run through some tunnels one last time. The doctor took her on a trip to another planet so she'd have the opportunity to once again have that experience of running through some rock wall tunnels. <laughs> well, it's interesting that they should have chosen Pamela Salem to do the audiobook for this, though, because she had nothing to do with the actual story. She is going to be a guest artist 
or artiste, I think as the British say, not in the next story, but in the next two after that. She's going to provide a voice in the story after this one, in the story after the story after this one, and then two stories onward, she's going to appear on screen. So it's really odd. They've chosen someone to do the audiobook who was part of the season, but not part of the story, which is an interesting choice to make. I think it may just be that Pamela Salem has an awesome voice and she's still around. So that might be a lot of it. Well, and as a person whose role in the podcast is supposedly to be innocent of all knowledge coming into <laughs> into each adaptation and not knowing all this through context, I had no idea who this was until just now. It didn't even occur to me to Google her because I just assumed that she was a professional voice performer. And like I said, enjoyed it a lot, but it was... a a tremendous spread in what she was interested in and brought a lot to. Mm -hmm. What else, if anything, stands out to you about this book? Um, not necessarily the book, but I, I did find an interesting either typo or um, mistake of some sort that I wanted to see if anyone had any further thoughts on. I need to rewatch the video and see if how it's said on the video, but on page 20, it's that there's that student doctor and the doctor is talking to him about uh, Sarah being knocked unconscious. And the doctor asked the student doctor, any signs of paralepsis? Ah, yeah. And I looked up paralepsis. It means irony. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. And I'm glad you caught that because I also looked it up because I was like, wait a minute. I know that word. I know that word because I'm an English teacher. I know that word. Hang on. Is that what he's saying? Yeah. I think he might have met paraparesis, which is paralysis of the legs, if I remember correctly. And that would make more sense in context. It would. <laughs> paralepsis. Is it a joke like saying someone's suffering from irony poisoning? Poisoning? <laughs> well, I don't think so, because paralepsis is a very specific type of irony. It's like dramatic irony. It's where the speaker is trying to hide something from their listeners, but you can still kind of hear it, if that makes sense. You can tell the speaker is trying to hide something, and yet it's still there. It's very much like a spoken version of dramatic irony. So paralepsis, she's suffering from paralepsis. Well, Probably because she's hiding that she's been possessed by Eldrad, I guess. But it's the weirdest damn thing. You're absolutely right. And the other weird thing, and Jennifer will know this, the young medical student is not a young medical student on screen. He is a full-fledged doctor. In fact, he's played by the same actor who was the physician to Augustus in the BBC's adaptation of I, Claudius. So it's weird that he kind of downgrades that particular character to just medical student who probably doesn't even know what paralepsis is. What else did you like or dislike about this book? I felt like some of the new kind of secondary characters had a lot more to do than Sarah. Okay. Or at least had more characterization than Sarah. There's that scene with, uh, I think it's Watson. Yeah. When everyone's been sent away from the reactor and he calls his house. He has that sweet moment with his daughter where there's the line about him wanting to tell her get your mom, but he wanted to have that last moment with her before he said, get your mom. Um, there's just that moment of sweetness there. There's also a moment with him with the gun where it talks about him having a 30-minute training session. <laughs> Being kind of exasperated at the time. Yeah. Um, so there's just all these like little things with characters that we're not going to see again that add life to them. I, and, and even the doctor, I feel like, is kind of a little more flat and a little less like himself. Yeah. I feel like Terrence Dix is never that interested in Sarah compared to how interested he is in Joe hmm. and how interested he was in Vicky. And he kind of dropped the ball on those characters to some extent as well. But she doesn't seem to hold his interest very long. No. And I think that may be because of Terrence Dix's stated dislike of the idea of women's lib. I, I don't think it was, you know, that he was a male chauvinist in any way, but he seemed to poo-poo the whole idea to some degree and thought that if you're going to have a companion... <laughs> not a chauvinist, I just don't really believe in the equal humanity of women. 
What are you talking about? It's really more complicated than that because his idea, and I think it specifically has to do, not within society itself, but with female companions and their role in the story, that he prefers them much to be the damsel in distress. And here she kind of is playing that role. But you're right, Dalton, in that you do have those moments with Watson Watson and Jackson, in fact, his assistant. Those are actually in the script, though. The bits that are new are his characterization of Watson's internal thoughts at those points, which I actually love to pieces. It's a good addition to this that we didn't get before. Yeah. That and yeah. Carter's possession on screen just comes out of the blue. It just seems to happen. Whereas here, it's built up quite nicely. And that's a surprisingly nice change. But I think you're right. He's not as interested in Sarah as he is in these secondary characters at all. And that's a shame, given that it's her last story and all. And, and he loves to sort of build out the characters with sort of minor functionaries and, and does that very well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, his characterization of Watson, for instance, at the beginning of uh, chapter four, when we first see him, at the moment he was standing by the central computer in the middle of the main control room, glaring about him like an angry bull about to charge. And that's brilliant. And at the end, he's happy when he's back being able to shout at people. <laughs> and I yeah. love that because I kind of know how he feels. <laughs> have similar uh, personalities there. <laughs> yes. What else? What else do we like, if anything? And what did we dislike? Because there, there are a few things to dislike in the story, and they're not necessarily Dix's fault. I have in my notes that we don't have enough obliteration modules around, but then I couldn't think of a non-war crimes use for one, so I gave up the idea of trying to obtain or develop <laughs> one. Uh, I keep harping on prologues, but I didn't notice, now I'm looking at the, the PDF of the book before I was listening to it, I didn't notice that the prologue does specifically use masculine pronouns for Eldred, because I thought later when there's a, a woman Eldred that probably they were just, you know, pronouns had been avoided in that prologue. So now I see that sort of the switchback was, was prefigured. But I really oh. liked the portion where Eldred's alleged crimes that we don't know yet if they are legitimately described or not are being read out. Eldred, the transgressor of the order. Eldred, carrier of all evil. Eldred, destroyer of the barriers. And this is done really well by the voice performer. It reminded me of the um, Franz Kafka story in the penal colony, which I think I've oh, talked about yeah. before. So I apologize if I'm repeating myself, where the condemned prisoners have their crimes literally carved into their backs with needles until they understand. I thought this had that, this was a significantly less, vi well, I guess it's not a less violent, a less explicitly violent version of that. Yeah, and it comes up weirdly on screen too, because if I remember correctly, and I I really should have rewatched this before we did this, but I I ended up getting the Blu-ray set of this season several months ago and watched it then because <laughs> pandemic I had to have something to do, and I don't remember, but I think those lines come up at the very opening of the story. Is that the case, Jennifer? Do you remember? Yes. Yeah. That's what I thought. It's a strange placement. And I think the reason Dix does that is so we know why it is that Eldrad wants so desperately to live. But you're right, Allison. He does end up using the male pronouns. He wants to have that lovely understated reveal at the top of chapter nine. Eldrad was female. <laughs> strange, thought Sarah, that she of all people should be so surprised. Why shouldn't their unknown opponent be female after all? what you might call a case of aliens lib. And I think, uh, Allison, you said something about that, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I thought it would actually come off a lot snarkier than it did. Yeah. I also, having no idea that years later, Fifth Element would be made. I've always thought when I watch Fifth Element, I've thought about the Hand of Fear. And when she's regenerated into a beautiful redhead from this alien that's come back to Earth that, that was blown up into bits, and they find and regenerate these bits of her, she's this beautiful redhead. And I thought it was an interesting an observation that um, Fifth Element was made so many years after the Hand of Fear. But that, that interesting parallel, I've always kind of linked yeah absolutely and it's played out very strangely here because 
The Doctor and Sarah are led to believe that Eldrad is female from the start, even though we, reading the book, realize that she is not. And then we get to the end where she transitions to he in probably one of the most violent transitions I've ever heard of. And it's interesting how that works, too. Especially since in the televised version, when we get the male Eldrad, speaking of the demons, it's Stephen Thorne again. It's the same actor who played Azal and Omega. So you've got this very shouty actor, not quite to Brian Blessed levels, but a very shouty actor. And he's playing Eldrad. And you're like, ah, okay. If they had met this Eldrad first, there would be no question of them wondering whether or not he's evil. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's just no way you ever cast that actor and you're not casting him as a villain. I feel like that was, for the audio version, the only real suspense is we don't know from the beginning if Eldrad's evil or not. This list of crimes is being read, but we don't know if it's a legitimate list. Eldred seems to go around possessing people and causing nuclear explosions, and that seems like a an aggressive thing to do. And then we're told that Eldred is wants to save a planet. We never we never know if Eldred actually actually good now, actually evil until we get that final reveal. So that was in a book that felt like it had to me very little suspense relative to the amount of suspense it was trying to drum up. That was the only thing that did keep me guessing until the end. Yeah. And you have to admit, the whole possession thing and feeding on radiation, it's a, it's a little bit of a red flag. <laughs> <laughs> Just a tad bit. But you're right, it doesn't have a lot of suspense to it at all. We've had characters before who are tagged as outlaws and enemies of society by a tyrannical government and are revealed to be folk heroes and liberators. So we, we could have had that story. but That's true. And yet we don't. We don't get it. That actually might have made a more interesting change, but we didn't end up getting it at all. Instead, we got a full episode of just going through catacombs and smashy smashy and fall (laughs) down pity and then Sarah leaving. Well, in the same way that Sarah got one last tunnel visit, on a meta level, I was very uh, amused that she got one last quarry visit as well. Um, (laughs) Yes. So the, the... recording was about a little over three hours and i've got the timestamp here 11 minutes and eight seconds in a quarry but i have been trained to believe by television that quarries are always abandoned <laughs> so i thought it was funny when things actually start flying here you were like you know a working quarry is actually a fairly dangerous place and i wrote something down i'm very ashamed of a working quarry is a rockin place oh, oh i'll show myself out <laughs> yes <laughs> She got a last quarry, a last set of tunnels. Oh. Uh, I have a question. Can the doctor traditionally memorize large volumes of material quickly by looking at them? I thought it was implied that he was memorizing the schematics of the nuclear plant. He can. It's not an ability that he often uses unless the writers need him to. But yes, he is able to read fairly quickly. In fact, in the new series, we have Chris Eccleston's doctor reading a whole book in like two seconds and saying how sad the ending is. And it turns out, yes, that book has a particularly sad ending. So he did read it. But yeah, he does have that ability. I do have an interesting thing about that quarry scene, though, and that is that Dix does expand on it. That's one of the few bits that he actually expands on by having Sarah and the Doctor debate whether or not they are on an alien planet, because every alien planet they've been to looks like a quarry. Yes. Because it is. Maybe they only visit mineral-rich, industrialized planets or colonized planets. <laughs> well, if every other alien planet looks like a quarry, then why would anyone ever want to explore the universe? Because it's just so dull in its own way. But yeah, this one's a working quarry, a rockin' place. God, we've missed you, Allison. <laughs> well, no, I'm just constructing a conspiracy theory in my mind about how, like, the big reveal for the finale of the, the new series, when that happens 30 years from now will be this entire time the Doctor was a geological scout for uh, one of the many evil mining companies that proliferate past, present, and future. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, like in Colony in Space. Oh, God. Yeah, I guess he could Miners be. are always good. Mining companies are always evil. Is on the one hand, a predictable plot device, but it's not wrong in terms of reality. Yeah, true. Well, the book titles The Doomsday Weapon, which is Allison's favorite book so far, I think, right? I think it is. 
Yeah, because you remember the title, so that's a sign. <laughs> that chapter does have probably my favorite line, <laughs> both from the book and from the actual story. You must have heard the Hooters. <laughs> it's like, well, I, I'm not sure what the circumstances would be for me to hear them, but sure. What else, if anything? Of course, the doctor wants the blue stone. That's kind of his thing when it comes to jewelry. <laughs> okay, I didn't think about this before. The last time we saw a blue stone was Joe's last appearance. Maybe I should have seen this coming. Possibly. Because he had the blue stone from this very comedic episode he had visiting a planet where everything was blue and also tried to kill him. Mm -hmm. He's being you know, placed by, yes, chased by blue unicorns and whatnot. And I don't know how it looked on screen, but it was terrific physical comedy as described. And then when the blue stone turned up again, there was this BS backstory about him having plucked it from the center of the web of the spider queen or something else that was significantly more quest-like than picking up shiny rocks on his vacation. Uh, so here we have another important, powerful blue stone. And is that how all the companions will leave now? Is there always a blue stone? Thank God, no. No. <laughs> it will not be. I do have to say, I am surprised that I missed certain things of Dix's prose until it was gone for two books, and we had truly awful prose. The parentheticals. I am amazed that I missed the parentheticals, and that I missed his turns of phrase. Like in chapter six, when the doctor comes out of that shaft... He says, the doctor shot out like the demon king in a pantomime. Yes. And it's like, oh my God, that's marvelous. <laughs> that is absolutely marvelous. And yet he doesn't retain some of the jokes from the episode. And I think it's because it's probably specifically Tom Baker and Liz Sladen doing their own lines for it. For instance... Liz Sladen actually plays the line as, it's not as armless as it looks. Yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And when he's done hypnotizing her, and he says, you're free of Eldrad's influence, etc., 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 she says, Eldrad must live. What? Just testing. <laughs> and Liz Sladen did that as a prank on Tom Baker to see if he would start laughing. And the director loved it so much, he said, oh my God, keep that in for the taping, will you? And, sh and they did. <laughs> and of course, it's not in the book, but it's a... It's I was going to say, it wasn't in the book. No, not at all. And it wouldn't have been scripted. But yeah, it's surprising what is still here. Like when the bombs don't go off, Sarah says, you mean they forgot to take the pins out or whatever you do with the missiles? Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> And her comeback to Watson when he says, I think you should do what he tells you to do, Miss Smith. And she says, what? And change the habit of a lifetime? Right. Yeah. When, when will she ever listen to him? Exactly. Exactly. So there are some nice Dr. Sarah moments in this, but there are a couple of things that obviously make it not so great. I was going to say, speaking of Dr. and Sarah moments, the fact that he punches her out... <laughs> I must have really missed that. Not at all. His fist flashed out and Sarah went limp. Sorry about that. <laughs> and then a couple pages later, Sarah rubbed her hand across her face and winced. My chin hurts. The doctor coughed. Yes. Well, never mind that. <laughs> he drops down into the, the reactor room and punches her out. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it, it is hilarious that that has been added in because I don't remember that being in the televised version either. I didn't either. I'm going to have to go back and look and see how they portrayed that. But I was like, I don't remember seeing that. He does knock her out. And I seem to recall that it is <laughs> something veering on a punch in the face. But here, the fact that she makes reference back to it, I don't think that actually happens. Sarah. What's the last thing you remember? Come on. I think the reason why that doesn't happen is because even Dix is not willing to actually say, yeah, the doctor's hammy fist connected with her chin like a prize fighter. No, I don't think he's ever going to go that far with it. You know, I'd prefer a scenario of one of the companions being punched out because they are facilitating 
the violent actions of some sort of evil alien regent over the doctor or one of the companions slapping uh, one of the female companions in the face to bring her to her senses, uh, which is the recurring motif that has ground down my teeth to the point where I probably need some kind of emergency dental appointment. Yeah. That's happened at least two or three times, hasn't it, since we started reading these? And only once has it happened with the doctor, but almost. Luckily, he didn't do it. But here, yeah, this... <laughs> I mean, what else is he going to do? Give her a Vulcan nerve pinch, which he could do later on, as it turns out. I think the only thing that kind of helps negate that is the fact that she's standing in a nuclear reactor that would kill her almost instantaneously were it not for the power of Eldra sucking away the radiation. And I was kind of confused a little bit. It it almost made it seem like Eldrad was protecting her from harm. But we, we find out eventually that, no, Eldrad was just sucking all of the power away so there was no radiation. There was no bad stuff for anybody to get hurt by, actually. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And probably that ambiguity is deliberate in the book as well, because... I never remember thinking that at all when watching the televised story. There's also something else that happens in the story, and I need to point it out because it's going to come up. Believe it or not, it's going to come up, just like that stupidity with the Time Lord gift from last time that allows his companions to understand local languages. When Aldrad is in the TARDIS and we get... The doctor yawned and stretched. I shouldn't bother, Eldrad. Your weapons won't work in here. We're in a state of temporal grace, you see, multidimensional. What do you mean? I mean you can't hurt us any more than we can hurt you. Now, obviously, (laughs) we've seen the doctor attacked in the TARDIS many times since then, and we will actually have a later story in which a character will make a reference to temporal grace to which the doctor will reply, well, nobody's perfect, which is just lovely. But it does seem like it's just piecemeal stuff that's good in here, isn't it? The bit when the doctor is going to hypnotize Sarah to get her back to normal, I guess. Oh no, doctor, not that again. That's not fair. (laughs) I hate being hypnotized. (laughs) That's like one of the few instances of that kind of relationship that they have. That kind of playfulness that you get out of it. So we're told the uh, stone hand scuttled in a rat-like way. It was hard for me to visualize the hand as menacing instead of comedic. How does does the hand look on screen? It looks exactly like you think it would look. It is an extra's hand. pretty bad. No, it is stuck up through a hole in the stage. (laughs) And it actually looks pretty good. I'm underselling that. It actually looks pretty good, but it's not nearly as active on screen as it is here for obvious reasons. compare it to thing on Alan's family it's very comparable to thing it is but even there (laughs) thing was a lot more animated in the original series and much more animated than the movies whereas here there was just no way they could have done that and luckily i will give them props for this they don't give us the whole cso overlay of the hand snaking its way along a floor we don't get a lot of that which is it really is a blessing. A lot of it wiggling its fingers in the box. Yes, exactly. Which works. Works really well, in fact. It's my hand in a box. <laughs> God. Oh, yeah, I have to track down that clip and put it into the podcast. Thank you, Allison. My work here is done, clearly. One part that I did particularly like when we were talking about the interactions between Sarah and the doctor, unfortunately, it's moments before her last scene, but when she's going through the doctor's toolkit and passing him things, and she's obviously aggravated with him, and he's not getting it, or at least he's pretending not to get it, and then she tells him that she's sick of that sonic screwdriver. Oh, yes. Both in the book and on the episode. I thought that was kind of amusing. You know, I might as well be talking to the moon. You don't even listen to me. Mergin nut. What? No, no. Forget the Mergin nut. I'll have the Ganymede driver. There. Yep. Oh. I must be mad. I'm sick of being cold and wet and hypnotized left, right, and center. I'm sick of being shot at, savage by bug eyed monsters, never knowing if I'm coming or going or being. Zeus blood. Oh, I want a bath. I want my hair washed. I just want to feel human again. 
Forget the Zeus plug. I'll have the sonic screwdriver. Oh, and boy, am I sick of that sonic screwdriver. Oh. Yes, because that seems to be... In fact, she might as well have just said she's gotten sick of jelly babies because those are the two things that he is so associated with at that point. It's also telling in that last scene, and this is something that is more important later, here in the book he actually says goodbye to her. On screen, he specifically does not say goodbye because that becomes a huge plot point. Because on screen he says, till we meet again, Sarah, which caused nine-year-old me, blubbering as I was, to think, oh, he's going to Gallifrey, but then he'll be back and he'll come and pick her up. And unfortunately, the character feels the same way. And we find out in School Reunion that that's exactly what she thought. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. And because even though she's going to appear in The Five Doctors, she's not going to remember those events because reasons. So this to her, is the first time that she's seeing him again after all these years. And she has a very significant bone to pick with him, that he's dropped her off not in South Croydon, but in Aberdeen, which is in Scotland. So she has a little ways to travel to get back home with her stuffed owl <laughs> and all of that. What else do we have to say about this? Is there anything else we want to say? Because it's a very slight story and that's not Dix's fault. He's actually doing a pretty um workmanlike job with what he's got, but he hasn't got a lot to work with. As I look back at the I'm actually reading um on the the page the the last few paragraphs here. I do like the sort of contrast to Joe leaving the Pertwee doctor which the screen version you showed us was very much even though she's not leaving. I mean he he's sort of literally driving off into or parallel to the sunset she's the one who's chosen to part ways and go off on this new life this is an interesting contrast where he's decided the baker doctor has decided that he is going to go off going to return home going to go on this different trajectory and sarah is the one who is sort of riding off into the sunset and it's, it's, it's sort of the opposite relationship that i think works as a contrast yeah, and it's one of the few instances where it's the doctor who chooses to have a companion leave. In fact, I'm trying to think, are there any other instances, apart from Susan, though he kind of has to kick her out the door because she doesn't want to leave, and yet she does want to leave, but he has to kind of force her hand in, in that regard. But I can't think of another companion where he says, okay, you're going, until the new series when he kicks Adam out for obvious reasons. Yeah, I can't think of a single other companion where it turns out to be the case. And as we find out later, it, he probably wouldn't have had to do it except for the needs of the plot because he says later humans weren't allowed on Gallifrey back then. We find out later that, yeah, humans are allowed on Gallifrey. Maybe not at that point. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit odd. There's the bit where Eldrad is looking at the, the race bank. And it says, stored in this race bank is a whole new breed of Castrians, a hundred million crystal particles waiting to be placed in the regenerator, a hundred million Castrians who will acknowledge me as their only ruler. Eldrad's voice rose as he crossed to the race bank. They will restore the cities. They will replenish the exhausted lands. We will build a new Castria, and together we will conquer the universe. Same old dictator's rant, thought the doctor wearily. How often had he heard it before? <laughs> just imagining this guy just in all his fury talking about all yes. the destruction he will wreak through the universe. And the doctor's just kind of nonchalant about it. Just like, uh, God, again. No new material. Just the same old, same old. <laughs> Even follows it with, oh, good grief. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep it moving. Yeah. Which is just wonderful. Yeah. You can almost tell that Dix is just as ready to get rid of Aldrad as we are. It's like, we're here again? Okay, fine. Can we get on to new stuff now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then from, only for him to find out that there is nothing in the race bank. It's been destroyed. And then there's the line, Hail Eldrad, king of nothing. Just a curiosity related, but a step off. Uh, since this is Sarah's last formal episode for some time, the next time in Target books, I, this is where I have my book of, are you planning on discussing K9 and company? Yeah. 
Okay. Sadly, we are. <laughs> now, wait a minute. That's a favorite. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I know, but we are going to be doing that because it's considered one of the uh, companions books, weirdly enough, oh, okay. in that same set. Jennifer, you're you're messing up Tony's whole scam here, wherein Dalton and I are are lured innocently and blindly <laughs> into these scenarios. Well. And Tony tells us what a, what a fun story it will be and what a good time we will all yes. have. But he already knows. He knows. But the thing is, Allison, you never remember when I'd say these things anyway. So. It's true. It's true. <laughs> Dalton will, but he won't tell you. <laughs> and Dalton doesn't seem to mind as much as you do. <laughs> I'm a, kind of a glutton for punishment. So. <laughs> As those last two books that we read shows. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So we will be doing, well, the ordering is actually going to be, she appears in The Five Doctors. She appears in Canine and Company. Then she will not appear again until, and I don't know which one comes first, whether it is Dimensions in Time, which we will not be reading because luckily no one has been stupid enough to adapt that into a book. Not that they could anyway, because you think this story is slight. <laughs> Boy, howdy. Or it's going to be Downtime, which was adapted into A Virgin Missing Adventure. And I'm still on the fence about that one. Those of you listening at home, if you want us to do Downtime when we get there, let me know. Because just understand, you will be making us suffer if you make us do Downtime. And making us suffer is your job. <laughs> And you're outsourcing it. Yes, well, that's just it. If they decide we need to do downtime, they'll be making me suffer too, because I fucking hate that story with a passion. Except for one thing. It introduces Kate Lethbridge-Stewart into continuity. Is it not a Target book? It is not. What What is the difference? It is a virgin book, and it is... Wrap your head around this one. It is a novelization of a fan-produced film. That is quite the, what's the term I'm looking for, Ouroboros? Yes, it is. That's the snake eating its own tail? Yes, it is. But it also happens to bring back not just Sarah Jane Smith, but Victoria Waterfield. So there is that. However, <laughs> having seen the film and having read the book, I know that it's like, oh, God. The only good thing about that story is that it brings Kate Lethbridge-Stewart into actual continuity so that we can have her as the head of unit in the new series. And that's about all it gives us. And barely that. But yeah, so those of you listening at home and Patreons and all that, if you want us to do it, then I guess we'll fucking do it. But that's a few years off, though, so don't worry about it. Anything else we want to say about this book? You're always so optimistic that we'll continue to be alive by the time (laughs) these decisions All I'm more likely to be dead than you are, but... I know, right? Optimism. March, ah. is, March is the most grim time of the year, no matter what else is going on. So. But April is the cruelest month, and that's when my birthday is. Hence, it being the cruelest month. There's so a there certain amount of excitement to the weather cruelty of February and April. That March doesn't have that same pizzazz of fire and ice. No, it doesn't. And now that we're so far removed from talking about the book... Um... <laughs> Jennifer, is there any last thing you want to say about this? I will, of course, get your rating on it at the very end, but anything else from the book itself you wanted to talk about? It was a joy to have that refresher, and uh, it had been, actually, I hadn't read a Target book since our last discussion. I'm happy to have been invited to talk today, and it was a breath of fresh air. It's something I hadn't done in a while. It was very pleasant. I had one other thing to bring up. Yes. Before the conversation got sidetracked by weather. (laughs) There's the bit when they're going through the tunnels and they come to the chasm and the doctor puts the beam across and goes across with Eldred. And Sarah is very worried about crossing this chasm. So the doctor yells for her, uh, help, help, Sarah. And she just bolts across. And it's totally just a trick. And she falls for it again on the way out. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. And then she gets him back by making him think that her ankle has been hurt. Yeah. When they go back out, those two bits are dicks. <laughs> that is not in the original script. And I actually love those additions, which is strange because there's not much to love about this particular story. Apart from that last scene, there's just not a lot to love about it. So shall we go to Goodreads? I think so. All right. As we always do. Let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline, so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.61, which is a bit higher than the last book. I should hope so, too. The reviews from our Goodreads group have, again, been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Damon gives his usual very short review, giving the book three stars and saying, Really enjoyed this book. Okay, it's not the best send-off for Sarah, but it's still a good read. It was a good read. It was a fun read. Okay. Our Patreon, Dave Davis, gives it two stars and says, There's a nice early scene with the joke of a quarry actually portraying a quarry rather than an alien planet, which I think works even better on the page than it does on screen. It really does. I was lulled into thinking it boded well for the rest of the book. Then Sarah was buried by a large part of that quarry. Such an incident would reasonably be expected to cause anyone to lose consciousness, but of course, this is Sarah being written by Taryn Stick, so he has her faint, like a girl. Trademark. It's uh, that recurring low blood pressure problem we've seen so many times before in The Companion. Yes, exactly. For me, this undermined the entire book. It would have been difficult, if not impossible, to translate Liz Sladen's powerful performance, especially as possessed Sarah, to the page, but Dix gets Sarah wrong almost from the start. I'm just surprised Eldrad didn't swoon while in female form. Dix does a pretty good job of Sarah's farewell, but then that was written by Robert Holmes, albeit rewritten by Baker and Sladen. And finally, Christian Petrie gives it 3.5 stars and says, This story is known more for the departure of Sarah Jane than anything else. With this, the last ties to the Third Doctor are severed. However, even though in the end Sarah Jane leaves, that is one small portion of the story. As with other Target books and Doctor Who televised stories, there is a small set of characters. This does bring the story down a bit as it reduces the scope. If this were written during the Virgin and or BBC Books era, the scope probably would have been expanded and have helped flesh it out more. But it is a Target book, and we can speculate on what could have been. Even with the limited scope, I did enjoy this story. It's a refresher from other recent stories as we see the Doctor more at trying to prevent deaths. In addition, this type of alien is new as well. We have not seen something like it before, which is always refreshing. Of course, the other part of the story is Sarah Jane's farewell. How can you give her a way out? You can't. Which is why her departure is an add-on and not tied to the events of the story. So alas, the Doctor just has to dump her in South Croydon, though as we later learn Aberdeen. It is still touching, though, and not the last we will see of her. In the end, not a bad target novelization. It is a quick read and is enjoyable distraction. Oh, he did quick read and fun read too. <laughs> so Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this quick read fun read? I'm not agreeing with it being a quick read or fun read. <laughs> well, maybe a quick read, not necessarily a fun read. I'm going to just go down the middle, 2.5. There's not a whole lot in this that I love, but it is written well enough. I think Terrence Dix does a good job of at least conveying the story from screen to text, but there's not a whole lot here that would ever really make me want to return to this story. It is kind of disappointing to see Sarah Jane let go like this. And I do say let go because it feels like she's being fired from a job. It's like, <laughs> mm, no, you go. And the, yeah, the fact that she's not even set free into her home is just just kind of the sad ellipsis to the end of the story. So yeah, 2.5 for me. Maybe even a sad paralepsis if we're talking about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> so, Allison, how would you rate this one? I mean, the other major activities today, I enjoy listening to it significantly more than I enjoyed the auditing midterm. <laughs> And once again, I feel like I can't give a fair rating to the book because my experience was of the audiobook. Um, I'd go two stars. I don't remember anything being horribly offensive or, or particularly grating or particularly wonderful and enjoyable other than uh, the prologue and then the final confrontation had some good moments of, of gravitas and humor in them. So two overall. Uh, more forgettable than I would like for the final story for a, such a significant character. Okay. And Jennifer? I will go ahead and go on a little higher on the scale, and I'll give it a four. Obviously, there were the things that we've discussed, but the biggest thing was, this was one of my favorite stories as a 12-year-old watching it. As a 12-year-old, I was uh, I really enjoyed it, and it was really a, a walk down memory lane, and it was really refreshing to to be 12 again and, and re, re-remembering that story. And so I'll put it on the higher end because it, it was a lot of nostalgia and, and good feels. Okay. And as for me, I am going to go higher than Dalton for once, which is kind of surprising, but not as high as Jennifer. He goes low, you go high? Well, something like that. I would give it three stars, mainly because it is a very slight story. I mean, this is not so much a fully fleshed story as just the outline of a story. And this is what happens when you reduce something from six parts to four and then you cut out most of the incidents that would have happened in that six-parter, and we're left with this. And then you tack on the ending, which isn't even by the original script writers, which means that essentially this is a Bob Baker, Dave Martin script, and it's not one of their best ones, followed by a mini-episode by Robert Holmes. And as usual, Terrence Dix is taking a lot of care with all of it, but he's giving slightly less care to the Bob Baker and Dave Martin stuff, and a lot of care to the Robert Holmes stuff, but there's not that much of it. That being said, there are very few additions to this. The additions that there are are actually not bad at all, but it's still not enough to make the story any more than the slight slip of paper that it was, followed by a massively important scene at the very end. So, yeah, three stars. Well, thank you all. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we discuss Terrence Dick's novelization of The Deadly Assassin, because really, what other kind is there? <laughs> yes. Competent, maybe? Would be? I guess so. We'd like to thank Jennifer Picker for returning for this one. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Dr. Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in order with those spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetPC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all this fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Yes. Till we meet again, sir. Till we meet again, sir.